Alright, it's 4.30, this is WCBN-FM, that was Dub Specialist with Banana Walk, um, before that was Memphis Mail by Scott Dunbar, and, um, it is time for the Living Writers Show that's gonna come up in just a moment, because my show has to end with, uh, Like a Prayer by Madonna, so... We're going to hear that, and immediately following that is uh, the Living Writer Show. Stay tuned.
afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is author Ted Libby, author of five books, including The NPR Guide to Building a Classical CD Collection, The Official History of the National Symphony Orchestra, and the book we'll be discussing today, The NPR Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music. Ted Libby was also curator uh, and known to NPR audiences as the curator of performance today's basic record library for 14 years. His early career included conducting and performing. He has been the senior music critic of the Washington Star, the music critic for the New York Times, editor of High Fidelity Magazine, Musical America Magazine, and uh, since 2000, the classical editor of the monthly Schwann Inside. He's also been a consultant to the JFK Center for the Performing Arts, Carnegie Hall, and the U.S. Information Agency, where in 1988 he received the highest honor they bestow, which is the Award for Outstanding Service. It's great to have you. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks, Ashley. It sounds like I couldn't hold a job anywhere, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I, I, I would never have thought of it that way. <laughs> I would have thought Renaissance man. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than a hopscotch, this this the resume reads very much like the post dot com everything. Um, so we're going to be discussing your book today, uh, the NPR listeners' encyclopedia of classical music, and um, it's a bit different from many of the books uh, we discuss on the show. In fact, it, when you walked in, I said this is the first time we've had an encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah, I bet it's different from most of the books you do. So it's different. So I wonder if you'd read just a little bit from the introduction, and then we'll kind of talk about the nature of encyclopedia as book. Well, sure. This is the introduction I wrote after I had written the book, uh, and uh, I had been collecting ideas for this introduction for a long time because I was working on the book a long time. But this thing, this little thing that I, I write about here, came out of the blue very close to the uh, time that I wrote the introduction, so it was fresh in my mind uh, when it came time to write. No one book can include everything that's important to everybody. I got a humorous reminder of that as this book was in its final stages. A good friend, one to whom I have often turned for advice, called one day and in the most salacious voice he could manage, began, I've put together a list of the composers that don't belong in your book. Oh, I said, yes, here it is. Beethoven, Vivaldi, Bach, Schoenberg, Berg, Webern, Nielsen, Ives, I can't stand Ives, Elliot Carter, Bellini, Donizetti, Verdi, Berlioz, Schubert, that horrible Pierre Boulez, Hans-Werner Henze, and Hawaiian music. I started laughing, and he kept right on going. Now you have the master list, and if I can think of any Russian composers, I will let you know. It was just what the doctor ordered. My friend knew how seriously I had taken the job of deciding what ought and ought not to be included in the book, and knew as well that it was time to bust things up a bit. I assured him that I would take his advice very seriously. But in the end, only Hensa and Hawaiian music failed to make the cut. Wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was quite a list, so Beethoven out. <laughs> you can imagine Freddy how much out. I was laughing when, I, <laughs> when he was <laughs> It's it's nice when somebody has their favorites, and uh, my friend was, was teasing me a lot uh, because he, the point he wanted to make was, look, you're, you're, there are always going to be people who complain that you don't have somebody in the book. Don't worry about it. 
you know, do what you think is best. You have to make some decisions. Uh, but he, he very, he was, he's very knowledgeable. And I actually, I, uh, showed pages of this book, uh, in, to do with uh, pianists. Uh, he's an expert on uh, pianists and the repertory for piano. I showed him those pages before uh, I finished the book so that he could offer suggestions and comments. He's somebody who's very knowledgeable but also has a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, in fact, he's the fellow that married me and my wife. He's an Episcopal minister. So oh, wonderful. He was having a lot of fun <laughs> watching this come together. So. And had a little sermon to offer about how to do it. Exactly. Well, that, that leads me to a question. Um, this is a book that the Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music contains 15,000 entries, it says on the cover, over 2,000 recommended recordings. And then we'll talk about this later, but there's a dedicated website which features more than 75 hours of listening. Now, how if Hawaiian music is out, <laughs> Hensa is out, how did you decide what is classical music? Well, it, it's something that uh, that is open to debate, but I felt that uh, that this was going to be a selective enough book that just because something wasn't in it did not mean that it didn't qualify as classical music. There had to be a cutoff at some point as to what was important enough to include in a single volume reference. We we can look at. Uh, some of the major, major works of scholarship that have been done in this subject. And, and the largest one in English is the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, which is 29 volumes, uh, about 20,000 entries, and uh, weighs about 200 pounds, takes up two shelves on your bookcase. Obviously, if you're going to put things in a single volume, some things are going to have to be left out, or else you're going to write two words about everything. But that was not the point. So for classical music, I took the broadest possible definition, which includes historically everything from early uh, notation, organum, uh, early polyphony, medieval music uh, uh, from from eight or nine hundred really, on up to uh, contemporary works to the present day, and I tried to include significant composers, not just the giants, but also composers who left important contributions to the repertory. Um, maybe just one important piece, but still something that, that uh, people would recognize. Significant performers as well, and there my, my standard was they had to be they have to be important now if they're contemporary. And they had to be historically important if they are from an earlier era. And the further back you go, the more important they had to be. Because as you go back, you lose the legacy of sound recordings. Um, There is no way that you can actually hear what some 19th century musicians sounded like because they were gone before the invention of recording. Uh, Same for singers. But we know that they were important because... They were responsible for the creation of new works. They were the muse that inspired a particular composer. Uh, they were the person who sang the first performance of a great work, something like that. So those performers, by dint of their uh, of the role they played in in the evolution of style or the development of the repertory therein. Uh, terms, you have to include terms. You have to include named works because this is an encyclopedia after all. So people are going to want to look up 
uh, operas by title, and I think there are like 128 entries on operas, individual entries on different operas. And then the longest single entry in the book is the overview of opera as a genre. It's because, it, you know, there's so much that you have to say and so many works that are part of this huge genre. Uh, there are also entries on some institutions, for instance, Juilliard, the Juilliard School, uh, and orchestras uh, and ensembles, the Cleveland Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, uh, the Metropolitan Opera, things like that. So... It was an attempt to to provide useful information for people who would be interested in learning more about classical music, people who listen to music on the radio, people who might buy records uh, or download onto their iPods, uh, people who who are ready to have some doors opened even. They may they may like classical music, but they may not uh, know certain areas of the repertory as well as others, and this will open some doors for them. And of course, for people who are just interested in starting out, this provides a lot of information that could be helpful in sort of guiding them toward Good those in. discoveries. Yeah. One of the, I want to sort of stay a little bit with this um, issue of inclusion. Um, you, as you mentioned, you include terms, pieces, composers, conductors, periods, movements, um, sort of uh, both depth and breadth of what it, classical classical music is, so that many different folks have entree to, at the level that they'd like to get in there. But in terms of defining the genre, his, so there's historical up to contemporary mm-hmm. work that's classical music. Where are the boundaries? Like, how did you? Why? Why did? Uh, why didn't Hawaiian music make the cut? Why did Henson not make the cut? Why did that horrible um, as Pierre Boulez did make the cut? How did he make the cut? I had to look him up, and so here I have Pierre Boulez, French composer, conductor, and administrator, who's career has seen him evolve from bomb-throwing radical in the culture wars to establishment icon. Well, there's the answer. How did he make the cut? Yeah, he, he was, he's a hugely significant figure in 20th century music, both as a performer and as a composer. Uh, and he has juggled those two careers quite admirably. Um, he just recently stepped down as principal guest conductor of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the age of 81. Uh, but he has been a, a very important, even more important, I would say, figure as a composer in the 20th century. Uh, in the years following World War II, he was really the leader of what I call the European post-war avant-garde, uh, working with the ideas that were developed by Arnold Schoenberg and Anton Webern uh, to develop an extremely um, structured, rigorously argued uh, contemporary modern musical idiom. Uh, and yet his music is not dull, and it has that, that certain quality of, of color and, uh, of, of elegance that we traditionally associate with the French. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there is a clarity in, in his music at the same time that there's a rigorous system that's being applied. Uh, somehow he was able to bring these things together, sonority and clarity and system. Uh, he was a very important figure in the 1950s and 60s. In fact, in the 1960s, um, I remember I met Leonard Bernstein for the first time, and uh, he had just returned from a tour of the Soviet Union with the New York Philharmonic. And I was interested in knowing what was going on musically in the Soviet Union in the late 1960s. And I, I asked him that question, and figuring that since he had just been there, he had some ideas, and I knew he had made a recording of a, of a work by a Russian composer. And he said, they're all trying to sound like Pierre Boulez. 
That was his, that was the one sentence answer. They're all trying to to write like Pierre Boulez, and then he, we talked for five minutes after that. But that was significant, you know that that here was the influence. This man's influence reached all the way into S- Soviet Russia, which at the time was not exactly hospitable to experimentation in the arts. Uh, so that's why he made the cut. And why did Hensa not make the cut? Hensa is also considered important in Europe, but not so much here. His his career has has been mainly confined to Europe. Uh, he's seen as a more important figure. His operas are more highly regarded there, but they're not in the repertory in America. And his music is rarely played here. So I just felt, you know, it would be nice, uh, but but you get to a point where where this is someone who you're not going to run into very much. Whereas with Boulez's music, we are running into it still, and it's so significant in terms of having established a foundation for an entire movement in musical style. One that I'm happy to say has probably run its course now, and we're getting into a, a, a new era with somewhat more approachable uh, musical syntax and, and more audience-friendly kinds of writing. But that's not to take anything away from Boulez, who is a, who's certainly a big figure. Well, and this book was 11 years in the making. Um, did, at some point, did you just sort of say, enough, out in? Or <laughs> did you re- reach page count? Or I, I thought, you know, I thought about that at, at the beginning. I, I offered a, a list of um, uh, what I thought should be the, you know, the entries, and it was about 500. And uh, my editor looked it over and said, well, this is fine, but it, this is not enough. We need about 1,500. I said, oh, my God. So I, I went back to the drawing board, and I had to basically triple it. And uh, then came the question, well, I've gone too far. And so then I started pulling things out. And then when, we, when I got to the end of those, it was time to look at things again. And, you know, five years had passed, and it was necessary to put in some new Entries, and so it was a constant process of adjusting, pulling out, putting in, uh, and and I'm sad to say that some sometimes I had completely finished entries that I had written that I was happy with that came out in order to make room for entries that uh, were necessary now for for a young performer, say someone like a Hilary Hahn, who who was probably uh, uh, 14 when I started to write this book and was n- nowhere on the map. Uh, but in the years since I started, has become a very important uh, figure, the violinist who's, uh, I think, going to uh, leave quite a mark. So uh, it was a, it was constantly being shaped and refined right up to the very end. And you'll notice in the book there are a number of, of uh, multi-page sections that are set out as spreads where they're different from the standard layout of the book. Um, and the, they have somewhat uh, more, uh, uh, let's say, uh, more ambitious uh, use of artwork. And they, uh, what they're there to do is to cover a large number of interesting uh, entries on a particular subject. So I have a spread on countertenors and a spread on early music ensembles and a spread on what I call American Mavericks and New Voices. These are composers who are sort of on the periphery of, of many people's awareness but who were Real in, rugged individualists, uh, people who had a unique uh, sound or style of writing music, and some contemporary figures who are very important. So um, those came near the end, and they were an effort to uh, sort of bring everything into balance uh, once the book was entering its final phases. Wonderful. Well, that makes for a good moment for a break, and we're going to hear a little Schubert, and I'll have you talk about it um, when we come back. 
You are tuned in to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Ted Libby, author of The NPR Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest today, Ted Libby, is the author of the NPR Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music. That was a little shivert. So would you tell us about it? It, it, it makes your top ten list of CDs to own. Well, this is this was a, a, just a, a brief cut from the fourth movement of Schubert's Trout Quintet. Uh, this is a piece that's called The Trout because uh, it contains a movement that's a set of variations on a song that Schubert wrote called The Trout. And that was that movement. That was the beginning of the variation movement. The piece is interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the complement of instruments that plays it. It's a string trio, a violin, a viola, and a cello, with an added piano and an added double bass. So that's what makes it the quintet, but it's a very unusual formation. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, of course, is the use of this variation movement. Schubert was uh, basically a student when he wrote it and was enjoying a summer vacation uh, up in the Austrian uh, countryside, and the person he was staying with particularly loved the song The Trout that Schubert had written a couple years earlier. So he said, I want you to do a quintet. I want the instrumentation to be the same as Hummel's quintet. That was another composer of the same era, which was that unusual uh, piano, string bass, violin, viola, cello. And I wanted to have a set of variations on your song, The Trout. And so Schubert delivered the goods, uh, and it's become one of the most popular uh, chamber pieces in the repertory, uh, in part because it allows string players to sit down with a pianist. And in this case, this recording, uh, the pianist is one of the great interpreters of Schubert's music ever, Rudolf Serkin, who has such a way with the music of pacing it and of shaping it, it just sort of rubbed off on the rest of the ensemble here, who were, at the time this recording was made in the 1960s, young musicians at the Marlboro Music Festival, where Serkin was a teacher and, a, and actually one of the co-founders. So this is chamber music at its best. It's a wonderful piece, and this is a wonderful perf- performance. So this is why I think it's you know among the best 10 CDs you could get if you wanted to start a collection. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that list um, in the third segment of the show. In the first segment of the show, we were talking about what is classical music, how did you decide what you would and wouldn't include in the book, and that changes were being made up until the very end over the course of the... There were 11 years that went into the making of this book. And during the break, you mentioned that... um, you left Huff out and um, Strauss's Electra. And I'm wondering, now that this book is a, a big, heavy, you know, object, with, are you, how 
And um, when you mentioned that um, Hensa didn't make it in, um, in part because Hensa isn't someone that we really listen to or hear very often in the U.S., how do you think this book will shape what classical music is, or will it um, create the canon, make the canon, codify the canon, support the canon? What what role will a book like this play, do you think? Well, I don't think it's going to, to create the canon particularly because it is just a single-volume work, and people know that there are limitations when you're working in that form. But I do think that what it will do is um, lead people toward important discoveries, important figures, important pieces. That's why I regret, for example, that I simply overlooked Richard Strauss's Electra because it's a very important opera, and it's one that belongs in this book. And I have no excuse. I simply didn't recognize that I had left it out until it was too late to put it in. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that can happen when you are juggling 1,500 entries, something that should be obvious may elude your gaze at that particular moment. Uh, so there are, obviously, there are gaps that I wish weren't there. Uh, the gaps that are there by design, like Hensa, I don't think are going to damage Hensa's reputation in the long run, particularly. He will be where he is in the canon. But what this will do is, I hope, uh, broaden the canon for most people who come to this book. Uh, the idea is that classical music is a very large uh, subject. It's a very large field. And uh, there is no person that has an encyclopedic knowledge, certainly not me. And as I find, not even an encyclopedia has an encyclopedic knowledge of the subject. What you have really is a kind of an archipelago. Uh, of, of, of knowledge or of ideas, uh, of, of things that are of interest, and you try to, to give an overview of that, knowing that there's water in between. Um, and you just don't want to sink into the water too much. You want to keep people focusing on these, these beautiful islands that are part of the ar archipelago, which are the pieces and the performers who have, have the greatest uh, value and interest for the general listener. For scholars, they may want to go off an entirely different direction and focus on one thing and go very, very, very deep into it. But this idea, I think, for this book is to broaden the perspectives for the general reader, the general listener. Uh, and again, the website that we talked about earlier is one of the things that does that and does it in a big way because we were able to put so much music on that website. This is in, in the old days, you know, you used to think you would really accomplish something if you had a book and a CD came with it. And maybe you had 60 minutes of, of tiny little snippets. Well, this is a book that comes with 75, 80 hours of music. Well, let's talk a little bit about how the book works then, and we'll yeah. we'll we'll talk about that that um, website. So we have fifteen hundred entries here, and um, most of the entries are then followed by a recommended recordings mm -hmm. section. Um, so you can go off and look in your own library or go find this. Um, there are also these little symbols that um, lead us to the website that indicate that there's a recording. But for example, when it, I was reading your introduction and um, that lovely list of your friend. Um, <laughs> the lovely exclusion list, which included Beethoven and Vivaldi and Bach, um, and then also Boulez, who we've spoken about. Um, I didn't know Boulez, so I was like, well, let's go find that, and turned to his section and got there. I, I then, as I was checking out the book, just randomly opened to different play pages and um, found things like under Q. I 
can't even say it now, Codlibet, Latin, whatever pleases, a piece in which different popular melodies are sounded either polyphonically or in succession. An example of the former is the last of Bach's Goldberg variations. And then there's the little symbol that sends us off to, That's right. to check it out. And you can hear it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really meant to be an interactive sort of um, reference, one that I can take my own library and go and learn more about it, but also one in which I can figure out what I don't know by going to the website and listening to it. Exactly. It, it's, it's very easy to do. Uh, you, when you see these little icons in the text that say that this, the, this music that's just being written about, that's under discussion, is available on the website, you can go to the website and you can go straight to that particular piece because it's all organized from A to Z, alphabetically by composer, uh, and click on it, and it streams right away, and it streams beautifully even on a dial-up connection. If you have a broadband, a high-speed connection, it's, it's even easier and sounds great, but it doesn't stop and, and rebuffer on a dial-up. It's, it's nicely engineered, this site. And so right away, you're able to... Uh, satisfy your curiosity. If you've read something in the book and you're interested in knowing, well, what does that piece sound like? Uh, I'd like to hear that that thing from the from the Bach Goldbergs that's the quadlibet, so that you get an idea of melodies going on in, in polyphonically or you know in, against each other in one way or another. Um, and you can do that. And then once you're there, you know what what happens. What I've seen happen again and again is that you have 527 links that you're looking at. You can click on any one that you want and say, oh, um, Mendelssohn, Hebrides Overture. I've never never heard that music. I wonder what it sounds like or anything at all. I mean, it, it's really remarkable that you can just sort of hunt around. I've, I've shown this to several friends and uh, many interesting, many of them, the first thing they notice is uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. It's a piece that's very well known. And B is high up there in the alphabet, so it usually shows up on the first screen uh, when you when you see this on the internet. And they click on it because they love the music. And there it goes. And so they're listening. And, you know, it, it's the, the temptation is to, to listen to one thing and then another and then another. So already you're, you're you know, being sent on a journey. And uh, you can do it in any way you want. Uh, and you can let the book be the guide or you can go off exploring on your own it's one of the one of the fun things about doing this book and uh, i don't think there's any book that's ever been attempted in classical music that's come anywhere near this degree of interactivity well i must confess i told you when you walked in the door that i that i'm a terrible luddite and i was terrified by this notion of oh my goodness now i'm gonna have to turn on my computer too um in addition to um hanging on to the book and reading that which i'm quite comfortable doing um and when I got the nerve up to do it, it, it <laughs> and it really did require that, um, it really is easy, and it did send me in interesting places. And um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about you. I asked you to send me some things that you would like to discuss, and one of the things you sent me was um, the top ten CDs for a starter classical music collection, which is a list that comes from an earlier book you've written called The NPR Guide to Building a Classical CD Collection. And on that list is um, Debussy and um, La Mer. Mm -hmm. So I went to look up Claude Debussy and um, was reading about the French composer and got to um, the 
middle of the entry. This is quite a long entry, and and, and that's actually something that um, is interesting about the way you've chosen to put this book together. You mentioned in the first section of the show that you didn't just want to put two words next to something. You wanted to give some substantive um, commentary in addition to anecdote, much of much of what's in here, particularly with respect to contemporary work in composers, is based on your years of interacting with some of that's, these That's these exactly people. right. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And I wanted it to have enough signposts there for readers that they could follow when I talk about a piece, that they actually could could hand on, hang on to something as they were listening to it. They were listening to it. Yeah. So in 1903, Debussy began work on his orchestral masterpiece, La Mer, The Sea, a magnificent hybrid of symphony and tone portrait in which a kaleidoscopic array of motifs, textures, and timbers is transformed into an aural canvas of dazzling beauty and power. This is what I'm reading from the middle of the Debussy um, entry. There's also then, next to the place where you mentioned La Mer, there's the little icon that would send me to the web. Now, I, there's also a later entry on La Mer. Exactly. There is an entry for that piece because that it's piece. so important. Okay. Now, that I didn't know until I stumbled upon it sort of by accident. Um, do you mean for us to go um, to just keep sort of digging as a reference, or how how did you expect these two pieces to work together, entries in the book? Well, they're not the same words, for sure. I mean, it isn't just a rehash of what's said earlier, but an attempt to go a little bit more deeply into the, into the origins of the piece and its composition, the dates that were important, and then to give perhaps a more blow-by-blow, not, not, not really blow-by-blow, but sort of movement-by-movement description of the work. And uh, these, these movements have titles, so it's important to say what they are. And then perhaps to talk a little bit about how the music works in these three different movements. Uh, so I will mention, for example, that uh, in the finale, uh, the the menace of the sea is what uh, W.C. is trying to evoke. And I also mention the fact that, that he may have been inspired in this by a piece of Japanese art, which is an interesting thing in itself. I mean, this is significant because it relates to W.C.'s o- openness and awareness as an artist of other art forms and other genres and not just European and this, this piece of work is Hokusai's depiction of the Great Wave, which many people have seen. seen it's it. a very, very common image. And I saw it, f- the real thing, for the first time just a month ago at an exhibit of Hokusai in, in Washington, D.C. at the Freer Gallery. Uh, to see that work, the real thing, for the first time is quite remarkable. And what you see is you see that the, the, the Great Wave is, is arching over the, these uh, boats uh, with, uh, with uh, people in them furiously rowing their way through these rough seas. And the wave itself, uh, the foam is breaking off into, into little bits. And each of these uh, break-offs of foam is in the shape of a claw. So you have the, the, the sea as something threatening and menacing that may be about to devour these people. And in the background, as, as for this whole set by Hokusai, Mount Fuji. So it's, it's 36 views of Mount Fuji, and this is one of them. But what you see towering over the mountain and over the boat and everything else is the sea. So this, this I think, was a, a remarkable case of, of an image that uh, was very meaningful to WC that may have inspired the way he went about portraying the sea. He looked at something menacing and, and scary, and he created that in music, I think, very effectively. 
Well, we're going to take a short break in a minute. Um, it's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. This is the Living Writers Show, and my guest today is author Ted Libby. We're talking about the NPR Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music. And before we cut to the musical break, which we would normally do straight right now, we're going to cut to um, Debussy La Mer. And we're going to do this by going to the website. And when I pull it up, I see many entries for Debussy, and I see two entries for La Mer. There's the Dialogue de Vent et de la Mer, which is this last bit you were talking about, the, the third section. And then there's also... Is it Jeux de Vague? Yes, that's the second movement, the second which movement. means the play of the waves. Now, if I'm reading this entry in here, and I'm not at the actual piece, La Mer, I'm back with um, the biographical sketch of Claude W.C., and I get to the um, symbol for La Mer, how do I know which of these pieces to choose? You should choose both. Well, well we won't <laughs> do that today. <laughs> that's <laughs> the wonderful thing. You have your choice. You can do either one you want or both. Or both. And then yeah. if I go to the entry on La Mer, you talk about Jeu de Vague and what that movement's about, and you also talk about the final movement, Dialogue de Vent et de la Mer, which is what we'll listen to now. afternoon. You're listening to WCVN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Ted Libby. We're talking about his newest book, The NPR Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music. And that was a little tiny snippet of the third movement of Debussy's La Mer. Apparently, all hell breaks loose yes, uh, <laughs> shortly thereafter. As, as we were saying, uh, <laughs> um, the, this is just the storm clouds on the horizon, and you can feel the... You know, you can feel the things are ratcheting up, but at the end of the movement, you have everything going on in the orchestra, and it is really magnificent and and splendid, and it's big. And I can remember going back to our friend Pierre Boulez one more time, <laughs> hearing him conduct this piece with the Cleveland Orchestra. Uh, and he got so much out of that orchestra and out of this piece that at the end, before the end, like like 10 seconds before the piece end, there's thunder and lightning going on everywhere in the orchestra, and I actually stood up with my mouth hanging open when I was hearing this because everything that was in the score was audible to me for the first time ever, and I was just blown away. So I was standing up before the piece was over in disbelief. I mean, and so... Um, this is this is for me one of the greatest works of music ever written at any time by anybody, um, and to to experience it in a good performance is really to experience something quite remarkable. But at least this way through this book, 
there is there is an uh, opening of the door for people so that they can hang on to some ideas as they listen to the music and then they have the website and they can go to it and they can hear these whole movements and follow the course of Debussy's tone painting through through two of the three movements of La Mer. So I think this really does sort of hand it to people. Well, let's let's circle back about this experience of being um, listening to Boulez um, conducting the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra and and this particular piece and and how moving that experience was for you. Um, you your top ten list of um, CDs for for a starter classical music collection includes uh, work by Bach, Beethoven, Bizet, Chopin, Debussy, Gershwin, Haydn, Mozart, Schubert, and Tchaikovsky. And I wonder if you'll tell me a little bit about what you think, I mean, obviously, this particular piece we just sampled, a, a small bit from, um, is, is a very moving piece. And, and um, I'm wondering who's listening? Like, who are classical music listeners today? And, and how are people coming into the fold? Is it a, um, a phenomenon that, that listeners are dying off? There are new people coming in. Like you mentioned uh, when you first started this book 11 years ago, um, the violinist, and tell me her name Hillary again. Hillary Hahn. Hillary Hahn was 14 yeah. years old now. She's yeah. a very important um, violinist. What's, what's out there in the, in the world of classical music and, and uh, the, the people listening and the people performing? Well, one of the interesting things about it is you never know what's coming next, you know, what's coming along. Uh, and that's part of what makes it fun. And even, even for someone who has heard a lot of it, there's always new things to be discovered. Uh, so you go, you can always find more in classical music. You can explore further and go deeper. Uh, I know in the process of writing this book, that was certainly the case for me. And when I was putting these these website links together with my editor in, in New York for this book, every time we got to a piece of Renaissance polyphony, she just oohed and odd. You know, it was like, wow, that's beautiful. And this is stuff written in the 1500s and the 1600s. So it's been around for centuries, but it's not music that you hear every day, and you don't often hear it on radio but there it is, to be discovered, waiting to be discovered. So your discoveries can come not only from something new that shows up, like like in Keats's poem where he said, uh, you know, how how uh, Cortez, Stout Cortez, actually it was Balboa who discovered the Pacific, but he he treats Cortez as the discoverer and how his 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 men looked at the Pacific uh, with wild surmise, you know, and then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. It isn't always just the new things that are coming along, but sometimes it's the stuff that's been there forever that you just didn't know was there until you stumble across it but uh, the the things that are happening in music who comes to music uh, I wish more young people came to it I was a I was an adolescent I was a early teen when when I fell in love with classical music and the res- it was the result of a course in high school that was required in ninth grade so I was 14 um, I was emotionally ready for the experience but some people reach that point later in their life, and they may be in their 30s or their 40s, and the right moment comes for them. Either they get dragged off to a concert by, by some friend or their wife or whoever, and they, they hear something that makes sense to them. And maybe it's Rachmaninoff, uh, who's very approachable, but, but with a kind of emotional turbulence and a, and a, and a darkness sometimes. And maybe it's because you've lived through some difficult things and suddenly this music speaks to you, whereas before it, it was a blank slate. There, this may be quite odd then. I, I was in public school for most of my growing up, and in my fourth grade public school classroom, 
classical music was one of the required courses, <laughs> and and it seemed to work for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just so I I hope so much that it's, it remains a part of the curriculum for for our schools because it's every bit as important as knowing literature or knowing sciences. Uh, it is essential. It's it's part of our culture, and it is part of what we have created as as a species that's a value and that will last and it tells us what's possible what what the human mind and imagination are capable of doing at a very high level i mean classical music is is yes it's a complex art and there's a lot going on that doesn't mean you have to be a neurosurgeon to understand it or to feel it because our emotions are there for us and they respond to the music but this is still, as an art form, it's, it's an example of the best that we've accomplished, like great literature. And just as you would not want Shakespeare to disappear from the curriculum, you don't want Beethoven to either. Uh, and I Even th- if your friend wants him out of this book. Yeah, even if my friend is joking, of course, <laughs> of that he course. wants him out of the book. And, and that's the thing. It, it, this, this is music that teaches us about ourselves. It's, it's a conversation with another human being, in a sense, who has lived through some experience that he or she is conveying in a, in a, in the form of sounds. But there, it's an emotional language. It's an, it's an abstract language that creates images as well. Uh, and the mind loves those things. The mind loves to latch onto something and guess where it's going next. And this is true of all music. But in classical music, that guessing game is at a higher level, and it's it's more exciting for the mind. Do you uh, have any do, do you have any comments on the the, the baby Mozart? That was, I guess it was about ten years ago mm-hmm. that um, yuppie moms and dads everywhere were playing Mozart to make their babies smart. Yeah, we were talking about this, the Mozart effect, and, and when I was at NPR, and and so we would all note these things, you know, and then we'd look at each other and we'd say. Well, if, if Mozart, listening to Mozart makes you smarter, what happened to us? You know, because we were, you know, we'd been listening to Mozart all this time and we weren't any smarter. At least we didn't think so. That, that is something that's overdone. Um, the key thing about classical music is not going to be some little incremental thing that it helps you with, you know, that it ma- helps make you smarter for 15 minutes, which is actually all it d- did, uh, or that it calms you down or whatever it is. The key thing about it is that it's intrinsically valuable, that it's, that it is, you know, in and of itself, it is beautiful, it is significant on, on a human level f- to our emotions, to our, to our self-awareness, to our understanding of ourselves. And again, it shows you that w- how close one can come to achieving perfection in life. And this is something that we s- strive for. Um, when, you s- when you hear a Beethoven symphony and you say, a human being made this, this is something, it can give you a sense for what you yourself might accomplish. And it, it can lift you, in that sense, out of your normal state into something else. And that word, the word for that, the, Greeks, the word the Greeks had for it was ecstasy. It takes you outside of yourself. And classical music does that, and it does it in a way like very few things, legal things, in, <laughs> in this world. And, and it, I mean, it is, it, is the, it, is the most, it is the most fun legal, uh, legally that you can have, probably, still listen to music. At least, I think so. 
Well, um, your epigraph for the book is the motto of the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, um, and this is from Seneca's Epistolae, um, and I will not hazard to pronounce the Latin, but the translation is, true joy is a serious matter. Um, you obviously bring great joy to your work and to this book. I wonder if, um, and, and compiling an encyclopedia is indeed serious business, um, but I wonder if you can speak about um, parts of this that you particularly enjoyed. Was there a favorite moment or bit to putting this book together? Is there, was there a section or an, in, an entry that was um, sort of the piece de resistance of your experience of well, 11 years of making this? Uh, there, there were several that, that I can think of that meant a lot to me. Um, certainly doing the uh, uh, introduction was an important thing because I had thought about it for so long. And then I saved the Mozart uh, entry for the very end because he was such an important figure. But the th- one that I remember most of all was the last sentence in the entry for this Mexican composer, uh, Silvestre Revueltas, uh, who isn't very well known, but he was a 20th century figure. And this is what I say about him, comparing him with Carlos Chavez, who is another Mexican composer. If, in listening to the music of Chavez, you come away with the impression that the Indians are happy, in Revueltas, you get the feeling that they are about to tear the beating heart out of your chest. So I just had some fun when I was writing this book, and occasionally I let those things stay in. And those are the things that I hope readers will stumble across as they look at this book and laugh and chuckle and say, well, you know, this, that was fun. Wonderful. Well, this has been a real treat. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Ashley. And there are books in bookstores near you, the NPR Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music. Um, signed copies, I imagine, are yes, going to be. Yes, there are some signed copies around, around town. town. You have been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today has been author Ted Libby. His newest book, The NPR Listener's Encyclopedia of Classical Music, has been the subject of our discussion today, as well as, briefly, The NPR Guide to Building a Classical CD Collection. We're going to end the show today with a little Rachmaninoff. You mentioned Rachmaninoff uh, just a minute ago. Um, And the archives for The Living Writers Show are now available at www.wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Stay tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. And this is Rachmaninoff.
You are listening to WCBN FM in Arbor. We just heard an interview that Ashley did a while ago for Living Writers. And it's time for Free Speech Radio News. It is 5.23. Listen to the rest of this track and then move on. Um, Also, if you are interested in tuning into Living Writers next week, we'll be playing an interview with Tara Altabrando, author of Pursuit of Happiness and um, also author of Level Tears Apart under the name of Tara McCarthy. So that's something to tune in for. Closets Over Close is coming up at 6. test yeah you just put it here between your cheek and your gums like this Mm, yeah that's right now rub it back and forth a couple times okay i I can do this pretty easy really ah perfect now just hold it there for two minutes Mm. yeah that's right just like that Mm, it tastes kind of salty this this is easier than i expected Learning your HIV status is now easier than ever. Free anonymous HIV testing is available at HARC, the HIV AIDS Resource Center. We use Orasure, which means there are no needles. Plus, the test is free and completely anonymous. 
You don't even need an appointment. Just stop by the Hark Testing Clinic in Ypsilanti at 3075 Clark Road, Suite 203, near the intersection of Clark and Gulfside. Testing hours are Tuesday and Wednesday, 6 to 9 p.m., and Saturday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. For more information, call Hark toll-free at 1-866-HIV-TEST. It's the Down Home Show, every Saturday from noon to 3, right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Wednesday, June 28th, this is Free Speech Radio News. At KPFK in Los Angeles, I'm Dan Fritz, filling in for Aura Bogado. In the wake of yesterday's agreement with Hamas to recognize the state of Israel, the Israeli military has launched an invasion of the Gaza Strip. Israeli President Ehud Olmert hints at, quote, extreme action in the effort to rescue a soldier abducted Sunday. We'll have the reactions from the Palestinian territories. Meanwhile, congressional Republicans are taking quick steps to punish the New York Times for publishing what they call classified information. The peace process in Sri Lanka breaks down. We'll have the latest. And Berkeley voters will vote on a referendum considering the impeachment of President George W. Bush in November's election. Those stories and more. Now these headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the Free Speech Radio News headlines. The U.S. Supreme Court today upheld a congressional district map redrawn by Texas Republicans in 2003. But it ruled part of the map discriminates against Latino voters. From KPFT in Houston, Renee Feltz reports. Democrats allege the Texas GOP engaged in political gerrymandering when they redrew House district lines with help from then-House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. Today's 5-4 decision stayed away from this political argument and approved the GOP effort. In the process, the court upheld the right of states to change their congressional district lines more often than the traditional every 10 years. In its narrow ruling, the court found one part of the map discriminates against minorities. Rice University political scientist Bob Stein. The goal was to identify racial or ethnic dilution. They focused only on Henry Benia's district and said that there was a significant movement of Hispanic voters out of the district, and there was a dilution of minority interest. That's a Voting Rights Act violation. Stein says the implications of the court's ruling will extend beyond the boundaries of this one district, which extends from San Antonio into West Texas. Responsibility for drawing the map goes back to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, but it's unclear if the lower court must issue a new map now or by 2008. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Renee Feltz at KPFT in Houston. A state in southern India is asking a judicial commission to find seed giant Monsanto in contempt of court. Binu Alex has more. 
the Indian province of Andhra Pradesh has filed a contempt application against the Indian subsidiary of U.S. biotech giant Monsanto for violating the Monopolies and Restrictive Trade Practices Commission's order to reduce the price of BT cotton seeds on par with China. Monsanto had earlier lost a legal battle in Andhra over the high price of its patented BT cotton seed. But Monsanto said it has already complied with the directive by reducing the price by Rs 20 or less than 50 cents. The state government termed this as ridiculous and symbolic and cited it in its petition on Monday asking for the court to take strict 